0: Welcome to the Finding Sustainability Podcast. This is Stefan. Today, Michael and I are talking with Liana Chua. Liana is a social anthropologist at Brunel University, London, with long-term ethnographic interests in Borneo, ethnic politics, development, more-than-human landscapes, visuality, and materiality. Her current research revolves around social, political, aesthetic, and effective dimensions of the global nexus of orangutan conservation. Liana received her Ph.D. in social anthropology and her MPhil in social anthropological analysis from the University of Cambridge and her B.A. in modern history from the University of Oxford. In the podcast, we frequently reference a recent paper led by Liana published in the journal People and Nature titled Conservation and the Social Sciences Beyond Critique and Co-Optation, a case study from orangutan conservation. You can find the link to the paper, which is open access in the show notes. Other topics in the podcast include how social anthropology contributes to conservation research, the outgroup homogeneity effect, boundary objects and being open to new ideas, tips for effective collaborative research, and in the end, Liana notes the risks of interdisciplinarity. Enjoy. Enjoy. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Let's get started with a bit of an overview of your academic background and how you got to where you are now.
1: Okay, so um, I'm a social anthropologist and actually I I didn't start out as an anthropologist. My first degree was actually in history. Um, I did a degree in modern history in Oxford uh, and part of the reason for this was that I, I just didn't know what anthropology was because I'd grown up in Singapore and nobody knew about anthropology um but what i what i was very very interested in as i did my history degree was this idea of trying to to imagine and trying to figure out what very different people who were sort of culturally or temporally separated from us in the present uh felt about the world how they experienced things you know what their view on life basically was so i think there was a kind of interest in in otherness of various forms quite early on um and so I, I sort of worked for a bit in, in a museum in Singapore after graduating, and then I, I switched to um, anthropology in a slightly uh, roundabout way. I, I came to a course an MPhil, in social anthropology and museum work in Cambridge, um, and I thought, great, I'll do this, you know, see what, see what it's like, go back to museum work after that. Um, but once I sort of discovered anthropology, I became, I became hooked, and luckily was then able to get a, a PhD studentship to carry on doing research in anthropology. Um, so my original research and, and the research that I've been carrying on doing for the last 16, 17 years is based in the Malaysian state of Sarawak on the island of Borneo. Um, and I've worked with a small indigenous rural community called the Bidayu since 2003. And I initially worked on conversion to Christianity, Christian life in Bidayu villages. Um, ethnic politics, and then later turned my attention to four small rural communities up in the hills that had been affected and caught up in this dam construction and resettlement project. And so I then began looking at large-scale environmental transformation and people's experiences of displacement. And it was actually by studying environmental transformations and also the, the influence of various global movements, such as indigenous rights movements in this area, that I became interested in the fate of another Bornean inhabitant, namely the orangutan, which is critically endangered. And so that kind of drew me to my current research on orangutan conservation, um, which I'm studying from a sort of social, political, cultural, religious, and affective perspective. Um, and I'm currently leading uh, leading a couple of social anthropological projects that seek to, that seek to understand various dimensions of, of, of orangutan conservation using the particular affordances of anthropological fieldwork
0: yeah since you've had such a, a long history in working in social anthropology how has that transition been for you going through uh, an education and then working specifically in this case study for such a long time and then transitioning into a more conservation space i would interested more if that's a traditional path within the field and, and how much of social anthropology is conservation or environmentally oriented
1: yeah it's uh, a. <clears> I <throat> i think I wouldn't say it's uncommon, but I wouldn't say it's very widespread either. So I think speaking very, very broadly, within the mainstream of social and cultural anthropology, you know, particularly in in sort of Euro-American sphere, the tendency is to prize fairly theoretical, fairly sort of conceptually oriented scholarship. So, you know, the the sort of general message that postdocs get sent is, you know, if you want to get a proper academic job, if you want to move forward in your career, you basically need to be applying for grants and for, and, and writing books and articles that contribute to some sort of theoretical breakthrough or, you know, that sort of create really quite, um, complex, uh, conceptual frameworks through which anthropologists can work. Um, and this was certainly very true, um, in my sort of PhD and postdoctoral experience in Cambridge, where there was a real sort of snootiness about um, what people kind of dismissively said, oh, that's that's applied anthropology. You know, we we don't have anything to do with that because it was seen as somehow inferior scholarship. It wasn't kind of contributing to any conceptual or theoretical breakthrough. And so for a long time, you know, I sort of grew up in this milieu academically, um, feeling that this this really wasn't what I wanted to do. This This wasn't what I had to do in order to, to get a permanent academic job, and it's not what I did. Um, but actually, this sort of transition towards a more kind of engaged form of anthropology took place in tandem with my move from Cambridge to my current institution, um, Brunel University, London, which has a very small sort of anthropology group working as part of a much larger um, social and political sciences department. And this was actually a real wake-up call for me, because I sort of found myself in a very different university environment where um, the university explicitly prized the idea of contributing to society and kind of engaging with the wider world through our research. This was also about the time that I was becoming interested in orangutan conservation and trying to understand, you know, what was what was going on. So my initial interest in orangutan conservation was actually quite sort of ethnographic and theoretical. I was, I was, I was trying to be a sort of classic social anthropologist and just study it from the outside. Um, but as as I began kind of delving further into this field and trying to understand things um, and, and kind of get a foot in the door, so to speak, I started to realize that actually I could do a lot more than just try and study orangutan conservation from the outside. And what I really needed to do was try to work with orangutan conservationists. Um, you know, part, it was partly pragmatic. I, I had to somehow find my way into this field in order to do research in it. But it was also actually um, quite an important step for me in terms of my career, because I, 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 I sort of felt that I really needed to do something to make my research more relevant um, in the world rather than just kind of disappearing up an ivory tower. So, um, you know, essentially what I did was I tried to pull my head out of my, my theoretical backside and start engaging a bit more in, in kind of a more normal language with conservationists. Um, <clears throat> I have to confess, though, that I'm not sure I would have done this if I didn't already have a permanent job. Um I think it's actually really quite difficult, despite you know, the sort of um lip service we play, we pay to interdisciplinarity and impact and engagement, it, it still is quite difficult for young early career scholars to to get a foothold in in, in in the sort of wider field of academia without first ticking all the sort of theoretical and conceptual boxes. Um so I think the challenge was partly methodological, but also partly um, mental. It, it sort of it was a bit of a shift in mindset. I had to sort of train myself to to think about what I was doing in quite a different way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about that meth- methodological switch mm-hmm. and a bit of how that turn towards being a little bit more reflexive on your own position and and integrating yourself into a little bit more of the practical aspect, um, which conservation science more typically is. What what were some of those methodological changes that you either had to rethink conceptually or actually played out in practice in terms of your fieldwork? And yeah, did Mm -hmm. that require from you a a rethinking or a retraining of, of what you're doing from your You'd say traditional or or PhD training, which you originally engaged in.
1: Yeah, it did. It did to a certain extent. Um, <clears throat> one of the interesting things I've found um, working with orangutan conservationists is that the, what they're fundamentally interested in is is what social anthropological methods can bring to the mix. So they're not interested in me pretending to be a kind of biologist or, or an ecologist or a conservationist. What what they really want to know is what conventional anthropological fieldwork, you know, long-term participant observation, immersion. Can bring to the sort of work that they're trying to do. So in some ways, the methodological shift wasn't very fundamental for me. Um, the the research projects that I'm currently leading are actually very much built around participant observation. Still, um, we've got you know we I can go into that a bit later on, but um, I've got a number of researchers working with me who are all basically doing uh, what we might call quite conventional, traditional social anthropological fieldwork by immersing themselves in very specific um, contexts of orangutan conservation. Um, I think the sort of shift, the big shift that took place in my case was actually learning how to put anthropology's traditional methods to productive applied use in a conservation setting. Um, And that involved trying to work out how we could use the knowledge that we were generating from participant observation um, in a way that would be legible, that would somehow make productive sense to the conservationists that we were trying to work with. So, you know, one of one of the big challenges we faced, for example, was just trying to work out what sort of language to use to try and cross this disciplinary divide another challenge was working out what um what sorts of formats to um to write our findings up in um one of the things we found really helpful actually um is is using a blog to disseminate some sort of pithy lessons for conservationists from anthropology in a way um and i had to sort of teach myself to use twitter which <laughs> which which is kind of what all the old all the conservationists are doing um so so it was it was sort of a combination of learning to do Something new and interesting with methods with which I was already fairly familiar. Um I mean, having said that, uh, I have also been learning to kind of um, approach various phenomena on different time scales and on different kind of spatial scales. Um I think one of the things that anthropologists sometimes get a bit bogged down is bogged down in is ethnographic particularity. So you know we we sort of tend to think, well, I've spent so much time in this one field site. I know this place like the back of my hand. I know the sort of local social and cultural conditions like that. But I, I don't quite dare to extrapolate from that and try to apply that to other situations. Um, and I think working with conservationists has actually made me think much more creatively about how you can actually work through the particular in order to... Um, provide different angles onto more general or more prevalent issues and concerns such as orangutan killing, for example, which is what one of our projects is dealing with. Um, and so that that's partly methodological, but it's also analytical. It's about how you kind of reframe um, the sort of work, the sort of analysis that you're doing for a slightly different purpose and a slightly different audience.
0: And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is how interdisciplinarity and I think multidisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity, and transdisciplinarity have all kind of emerged onto the scene as something which we all seem to kind of praise and a lot of us are aiming to work for or mm. work towards. And then even a lot of the major funding lines in Europe and North America are even requiring these aspects within your proposals. Yeah. And. You know, on one hand, we can see that this is, uh, I think a lot of us agree, this is a a positive direction forward. But on the other hand, we don't really know how to do this in practice. I I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people struggle. It would be interesting to get your reflections on some of those details or or challenges that you've Mm -hmm. had in your projects. And, you know, what is it like for you to talk with a conservation biologist? What what are those types of research discussions that you have? Mm. And what are some of those those nitty gritty details which actually try to make the work uh, functional and make a functional collaboration.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's been really, really challenging. And as you say, interdisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity, whatever. I mean, this, this is all the rage right now. But the question is how you actually um, translate this into, into kind of on the ground work. And that's surprisingly difficult. Um, so one of the things that um, I did for one of my projects, which is a big kind of multi-sided ethnography of, of the global nexus of orangutan conservation was convene a small workshop with conservationists, with people who'd worked mainly in orangutan conservation um, who were based mainly in Europe because I had a fairly small budget for that. Um, and it was really unusual and interesting because it essentially forced a bunch of conservation scientists and conservation professionals and a bunch of social anthropologists and other social scientists into one room around one table where we all were actually forced to sit down and talk to each other in a concerted manner. Um, and, you know, the, the feedback I got from that workshop was that it was actually surprisingly, um, novel. Many people hadn't actually been put in that situation before. And I think one of the things that it really brought home to me was that I think there tends to be a tendency when we talk about interdisciplinarity for individual disciplinary practitioners to engage with the outputs or the methods of other disciplinary practitioners. So, you know, for example, um, social anthropologists have often been extremely critical of conservation discourses and policy um, recommendations and so on. They they don't necessarily pay much attention to the conservationists themselves. Um, and in the same way, there's, there's, there's sometimes been a rush of conservationists and conservation scientists trying to um, co-opt basically social scientific methods and insights into conservation work Without necessarily talking to social scientists themselves, um, and I think this is the kind of you know that this can lead to a slightly thin form of interdisciplinarity, um, which can actually be extremely damaging because there's a very very high risk of you know methods being misunderstood or misused. There's a very high risk of um, sort of in the, the sort of individual variations within conservation organisations um, to be glossed over when we're when when social scientists look at conservation discourses, for example. Um, and so what what that whole workshop really brought home to me was this was this point that I think we need to do more talking to individuals. I, I think we need to engage much more with each other um, as persons rather than as representatives of our particular disciplines. Um, and that's not always easy to do, partly because, um, as I said earlier, there's there's always this question of language and sort of translating uh, very, very specific disciplinary terms and ideas into a sort of legible cross disciplinary uh, vocabulary. But also partly because I think very often, um, and this has been particularly true in in, in the engagement between social sciences and um, conservation practitioners, there's often this fundamental mismatch, I think, between the different teleological frameworks of disciplines. Um, So, you know, for social anthropologists, for example, the sort of teleology tends to be produce a critique, produce a description, come up with some grand theory to describe what's going on, but don't prescribe. That's what we always tell our students, right? It's not your job to prescribe, it's your job to analyse. But then you you then find yourself in conversation with a conservationist who says, well, okay, that's great, nice description, wonderful, sounds very impressive. But what are you going to do with this at the end of the day? How are you actually going to make this contribute to something, to a a project of importance in the world? Um, And that is because very often, you know, the entire sort of field and discipline of conservation science is crisis oriented. It's built around a very specific project, which is producing interventions that are sort of measurable and and, and that could actually have an effect in the real world. Um, and so, I think that that in itself is something that can actually cause a lot of um, talking at cross purposes when it comes to uh, when it comes to interdisciplinary efforts. And so, again, um, one of the things that we found really useful um, at this workshop was actually to force us into this room to trash this out in real time. Um, you know, very often you don't, you don't have the space and you don't have the time um, to actually engage in this sort of exchange with other individuals, with other people. And, and I think creating those sorts of spaces, um, one of our p- participants called it a safe space, um, is actually extremely important when it comes to um, hammering out the nitty gritty of interdisciplinary collaboration.
0: Michael, would you like to jump in? This is all, I think, really fascinating and
2: important stuff. So I'm reminded uh, throughout this discussion of a term that social psychologists use called the outgroup homogeneity effect, which really Mm -hmm. seems to be kind of permeating through all of this. And it's one of these concepts that kind of is what it sounds like that, you know, I saw this in in your writing too, Mm -hmm. uh, Liana, that it's really, it's it's this, it sounds obvious, right? The idea that there's in-groups or Mm out-groups, and we tend to... um, not be very generous in our understanding and characterizations of outgroups the way we are with our own selves and our own in-groups. Mm. Um, right, I tend to be very aware and I think this happens at multiple levels. I'm very aware of my own variations in mood, my, sense, my multiple senses of self and I extend that same understanding to people around me. Mm. But then I extrapolate wildly from the limited samples I get from outgroups and you know if I meet one person and they're in a different group and they're kind of grumpy, well, then that person's just a grumpy person, yeah <laughs> right. Um, and I feel my brain feels perfectly entitled to do that mm-hmm. so um I feel and there's it's interesting because there's multiple different groups that we're talking about here, mm. and I think one of the important lessons that I'm hearing so far is you know we need to. We need to recognize that there is more heterogeneity within groups. And that's been, you know, um, as I see again in your writing, that's been applied to communities themselves um, mm-hmm. to respond to this panacea of community-based conservation. You know, there there are differences within communities. There are politics, et cetera. And I feel like I'm hearing some already some important lessons for how to deal with this issue. I really liked how you, how you talked about, Um, you know, the the idea of legibility, which I learned from James Scott and Mm, seeing like a mm -hmm. state, which is such a powerful concept. Mm -hmm. Um, it's this challenge, right? Because you were saying, how do we, how do we make our work legible to other folks, which I think is really important. And yet, you know, later on, we're talking about different groups just looking at each other's outputs because that's what's legible. Yep. So legibility is both an important tool. Um, it's it's something that we need to be able to do, make our work legible, but it's also potentially exacerbating this dynamic because as you kind of said, I don't, you know, I'm obviously reframing it in my own words here, but we don't look at the people. We look at these more legible aspects of the people that we then associate with them. Mm-hmm. And so the antidote, I think, you know, passes kind of the emotional intelligence smell test, which is a a, a an important way to confront this is to actually meet the people. I mean, I think this is kind of borne out by a lot of our own human experience. Um, it allows you to kind of expose be exposed to the variation here. And so I, the the question this is leading me to is, is that all makes sense. And I think it's an important set of observations. I get stuck with the, the question of how this should affect our discourses mm-hmm. because we're still going to use these abstract nouns to refer to groups, right? We're still going to talk about, yeah. because we, it, arguably we can't get away from that, right? We're going to talk about the anthropologists, the cultural anthropologists, the conservation biologists.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so are we, and I, my concern there is because that there's some homogen, homogenization.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm not going to try that word again. Mm-hmm. Every time we use one of those nouns, right? That's, There's maybe a little bit of that happening. Is that okay? Can we get away from that, or is?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. And actually, um, this was one of the big issues that that came up in the reviews for um, you know for this paper that that you're referring to. So this was um, uh, the. the publication that emerged from this particular workshop um for listeners who who may not know what we're talking about um <clears throat> was basically a co-written piece that various um conservation and social science participants in that workshop actually got together and wrote jointly you know via google docs and um uh, various email exchanges um as a kind of example of how we might think through um the challenges of dealing with the social dimensions of orangutan conservation um in order to try and constructively push forward uh, the conservation social science relationship and absolutely one of the big questions that kept emerging during the reviews was yeah but i don't recognize myself in this or you know who are these conservationists you're talking about who are these social scientists this is not what i as a whatever geographer or conservation right. social scientist do um yeah it's it's really really difficult um it's i think it's a, it's a bit of a fine balance i think you know I, I think at some point and this is something i've really had to train myself into thinking as well as an anthropologist is that at some point, you have to accept that y- you just need to get on with using kind of bigger, um, I guess you could you could sort of call them holding devices, right? At some point, you're going to have to fall back on a definition, a noun, um, in order to keep writing because otherwise you're just never gonna be able to kind of get your point across. Um so yeah. at some point you're just gonna to have to say, okay, by anthropologist I'm referring here to blah, 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 rather than mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. But for the purposes of this article, I'm gonna carry on using the word anthropologist. Um, so I guess that's maybe one way of, of dealing with it, that, you know, at some point you just have to acknowledge that even though there's there's particularity involved, you can't let yourself get paralyzed by hyper particularity, because then you just can't do anything. Um, so I think there has to be a kind of strategic acceptance on various people's part that at some level you will have to reify. At some level you will just have to kind of get on with it and, and kind of bracket off a certain group or a certain whatever. Um, in order to keep things moving. Um, <clears throat> I suppose the question is how, well, first of all, how, how, how attentive we are to ensuring that those don't then somehow unconsciously seg into bigger stereotypes about what anthropologists and conservationists do. Um, You know, I think that was something that we had to keep reminding ourselves as we co-wrote this this paper, that even though we sort of tried to define who exactly we were referring to from the start, there were times later on in the paper where we kind of unconsciously thought, oh, well, you know, we can just talk about conservationists as a whole. Um, and actually, it wasn't very helpful. Um, so I think one, one thing which, which I think hasn't really received enough attention when we talk about interdisciplinarity is thinking much more carefully about writing methods. Um, you know, we often talk about doing interdisciplinary research um, through on the ground projects, for example. I and mean, then we kind of write up a report about it. But one of the points that we were trying to make through this joint paper was that actually language matters as well. Um, And the way in which things are presented and packaged and framed as the end product can actually make a huge difference uh, to to the final outcome of an interdisciplinary uh, collaboration. So I think that's one possibility that we start thinking much more carefully about our linguistic strategies, the ways in which we're actually framing what we're doing at the other end rather than in the kind of primary research phase. I think just to kind of follow up as well on, on this point about legibility and, and um, heterogeneity, I suppose the other question that a lot of this throws up is um, what, what you want to do when you've established a connection based on legibility, um, which is, mm. which is to say, okay, when you know, you, you sort of acknowledge that there are differences between the disciplines or within disciplines or whatever, The question then becomes, in your interaction, in your engagement with each other, do you then want to strive to overcome that difference by creating a kind of encompassing shared set of principles or framework of understanding? Or do you want to try and respect that difference and work through that difference and use that as the basis um, of of a new project that, that somehow respects rather than tries to nullify divisions or distinctions between disciplines Um, and i think that's an incredibly challenging proposition because you know i think the tendency in most contemporary scholarship is to try to encompass to try and nullify you know just just kind of iron out the differences and the bumps that you find on route so that by the end of it you come up with a very sort of smooth coherent research output or research package or whatever Um, and I think the question that in a way I was trying to pose in this paper was, you know, how, how can anthropologists or social social scientists and conservationists move forward in this relationship by being legible to each other, but by also consciously not trying to encompass each other's distinctive strengths and understandings within our own frameworks? Does, does that sort of make sense? I mean, can, can yes. you can you have difference without complete encompassment and the nullification of that difference
2: yeah I mean we're in I think we're into some deep waters here um <laughs> I mean, so was, one of the terms you you mentioned kind of bracketing people with these nouns I mean one of the the brackets that you mentioned that I'm particularly interested in hearing a bit more about as well is the uh, the applied anthropologist mm. is, a, is a really interesting term you know I imagine there's some people that feel like that's an oxymoron mm. um, and I' I've, I've I've experienced um, what I would almost characterize as the expression of a taboo the way you're describing it against generalizing among some culture anthropologists that I've engaged in. It's, Mm -hmm. there's this sense that there's, you know, it's a moral sensibility.
1: Oh, yes, um, yes.
2: The way i perceived it, which is really interesting. I mean, I'd so, you know, my own background, I was, I was taught, you know, the long history of, of you know, outsiders coming in, being undersensitive to context and power relations, etc. But then at the end of the day, I think I, I do have a lot of the conservation biologists to urge to prescribe, because at the end of the day, if we can't get to that point, and so it's been interesting for me to try to bridge this kind of moral gap, um, which leads me to the question, do you, do you think... How much of a thing is applied anthropology? How established is it? And do you think it should be more established? I mean, I'm interested in your your relationship, you know, because you were mentioning your relationship to conservation biologists. I'm also interested in your relationship within your own Mm -hmm. in-group. How does the labels that you... You know, for example, the idea of being applied anthropologist, how does it affect your relationship yeah, to yeah. your culture? Oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, how many how many days have you got? It's um, <laughs> mm-hmm. um I think yeah. I think in a sort of ideal world, you know, we wouldn't have terms like applied anthropologist, uh, you know, because, because that sort of implies that anthropologist is the kind of is the default. Right. So that's the norm, which is. Uh, a scholar who's not applied. Um, but uh, I mean, you know, just just without going into too much detail, um, the idea of applying anthropological insights has been intrinsic to the discipline's history since its inception in the late 19th century. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that anthropologists have kind of fallen in and out of love with uh, over the course of the last kind of 120 years. Um, <clears throat> for a long time, um, anthropology you know was historically uh what's been described as the hand, the handmaiden of colonialism right so it was it was historically used um uh, as a sort of almost as a sort of colonial tool to try and um, understand study analyze uh, categorize the the different native primitive types that lived in in the furthest reaches of the empire um right. that there was a real kind of um and and quite right. Quite rightly um, a very strong reaction against that in about the 1970s um, as part of a wider sort of decolonizing um, or sort of anti-colonial move within the discipline. And at that point, um, there emerged this kind of split between what was seen as mainstream scholarly anthropology and applied anthropology. So applied anthropology, uh, you know, has sort of always been there. It's just been foregrounded and then kind of shunted into the background at different times. Um, so what happened from about the 80s to quite recently was that applied anthropology was seen as a separate field. There have been various, um, societies set up to promote it, for example. But it was seen as a field that was not, it was sort of seen as slightly, um, lower down the disciplinary hierarchy, I suppose, um, compared to academic anthropology, which is very much kind of entrenched in the universities and engaging in, you know, quite deep ivory tower style scholarship. Um, and that's been that way for quite a long time, although there have been many applied anthropologists, as you might call them, um, actually working in all sorts of fields uh, for the last few decades. You know, people work in industry. They work in um, corporations as in-house ethnographers. They've worked as user experience experts, um, you know, all over the place. Uh, you just don't hear about them very much because they're not actually in mainstream academic anthropology Um, So that's kind of been this, there's been this really weird bifurcation um, up to quite recently. And that was very much the the bifurcation that was, um, that shaped my experience as a PhD student and postdoc in Cambridge. Um, But I think in the last sort of decade or so, there's been uh, much more of an interest in uh, what's been variously called applied public engaged anthropology. And these mean slightly different things. But essentially, I think there's been much more of a recognition in the last um, decade that actually anthropologists uh, can uh, engage with the world in lots of other ways uh, that are not incompatible with the way they engage in academia. So I think there's been a move to try and make the applied bit of anthropology uh, much more intrinsic to mainstream anthropology. So as you say, you know, I- ideally, this would be an oxymoron, but it's been a... I think it's been a real struggle, um, to get to this position. Um, and certainly, you know, when I speak to various colleagues, various people in, in different departments around the world, um, there's still a lot of suspicion about what anthropologists are doing when they work with conservationists, for example, or when they work in industry, because there's a real kind of sense that, um, they're somehow betraying the discipline or betraying, um, you know, the small people like the indigenous groups or, um, the marginalized communities that we've historically worked with um, <clears throat> by somehow collaborating or colluding with, with what could be quite um, dangerous um, forces. And and that's, and that's a kind of, you know, I, I think, I think it is right that we're cautious about who we collaborate with. Um, you know, I, I think it is right, for example, that there were quite critical questions that were raised about the incorporation of anthropologists into the U S armies, um, efforts to um engage to to kind of create a ground presence in the middle east for example uh but at the same time i think you know a lot of this uh is basically an extension of a much earlier snootiness about applied anthropology being substandard anthropology you know not real anthropology Um, so as i said you know uh, earlier on um as as a Fresh PhD student and a postdoc, I think I would have been very, very nervous about doing some of the more applied work that I've been doing with conservationists recently because I didn't have tenure. And you know, basically, I was very aware at the time that to get tenure, I had to be doing the right—I had to be jumping through the right hoops and and kind of writing you know very scholarly articles and and doing all the right things. Um, so I think you know, in, in a sense, that I am in a, in a much more kind of privileged and more comfortable position now. Um, which has helped. But it, it is tricky. It is quite difficult.
0: I have a few follow-ups. There's a couple of interesting things I've been thinking about here. And one of them is this aspect of applied research in general. And I think you particularly see that in the conservation space and, and numerous disciplines. And one is that this push towards more of a focus on policy recommendations and what it could be, the implied impacts from one particular study that any of us do. And think there's two perspectives on that and one is that decision making from a science perspective should come from an aggregate of or consensus which is based on a corpus of literature or or a review or a meta-analysis which which Mm -hmm. synthesizes observations and and can then make a more maybe a critical reflection which reflects more from different studies and different perspectives on one area and then we can use that information to to make better decisions uh, for example, with policy. Mm-hmm. And, and on the other hand, you have more of this if you if you don't write up a applied aspect of your work and you're working in this field, then you can perhaps leave that work to the interpretation of others um, to where it might not be interpreted in the way where you understood that work theoretically or methodologically. Mm. And then you also have the opportunity when you think about writing up your a policy recommendation or perspective, uh, for example, in the end of your article, uh, to make an impact. I, I wonder how you think about that in the applied research space, this kind of tension between needing to have a consensus-based decision-making process within science in terms of how we interface with policymaking versus uh, relying too much on on individual studies?
1: Gosh, yeah, no, that's, a, that's a really difficult question. And it's sort of, it's sort of analogous to the the tension, you know, within anthropology between the particular and the general, right? How, how much do you extrapolate from, from the particular insights that you've gained through your ethnographic research, for example, you know, how, how far can you stretch them? How far can you make them generalizable? Um, <clears throat> I, it, it's a really tricky one. I think one of the things that I'm certainly finding, um, you know, and I work with orangutan conservationists, is that it's really difficult to get consensus. Um, You know, even even within sort of orangutan conservation science and strategy, for example, there there are at least a few different viewpoints on um, what the main threats to orangutans are, what the best way of saving them is, you know, the extent to which um, conservationists should be uh, engaging with, you know, things like oil palm corporations and governments. So there's a lot of there's a lot of um, disagreement, I think, um, that goes on even within very specific fields. So again, you know, that there is this question of, of to what extent you you homogenize groups, right, and just kind of assume that they've got a single opinion or a single viewpoint, um, and to what extent you kind of delve into the differences within them. Um, I mean, you know, from my point of view, I think it's it, it, it's very it, it it's going to have to vary on a case by case basis. I take a fairly pragmatic view of things, so I. Um, you know, if I'm called upon, for example, to provide um, a very specific individual case study or a very specific recommendation based on the work that my research team and I are doing, um, great, we'll do that. Um, but at the same time, um, if there are opportunities, for example, to work with other social scientists who are working on very similar issues, um, I mean, for example, um, there, there, there's a or the various groups who are working on on, um, questions of uh, conservation policy, um, militarization and securitization within conservation. If there are opportunities to actually find ways of collaborating with these other groups with a sort of similar interest and a similar perspective in order to intervene on a slightly different scale, um, then I'd be absolutely up for it. But I think, you know, a lot of it has to be fairly pragmatic. If you're given an opening, uh, you jump through it you try to make it as as fair um, as as um, careful as possible. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I'm not really sure how to answer that. <laughs> it's uh, it, I I think I think it's a matter of you know just just being very careful about what sorts of opportunities you pick up on and and where they might actually lead to. Um, but it also I think it also involves accepting that actually you're never going to get a perfect consensus in any field that you work in. Mm. Um, You know, so even within, you know, even within anthropology or the social sciences, for example, you know, you you might get very broad sort of critiques of conservation. uh, But then within those critiques, you get a huge amount of variation. um, In the same way that you get a huge amount of variation in terms of, um, you know, opinions over whether or not you should even be collaborating with conservationists because some social scientists will say that conservationists are the enemy. Um, So, Again, it's it's sort of it's. I think it's taking pragmatic decisions about where your individual contribution can make the most difference, either on its own or as part of a larger sort of collective of individual voices. But also acknowledging that none of that's going to be perfect. Um, you know, a, a lot of it is just muddling your way through. I suspect.
0: Mm. Michael.
2: Yeah. So we're talking a lot about collaboration, and I suppose collusion is the dark side of collaboration, mm. and, and it sounds like you have a lot of informal and formal experience in collaborating. So I'm wondering whether you could talk to us about what conclusions you've drawn for yourself or for other people about what makes a good collaborator. So if there's, you know, a story about a particular person, if it's a conservation biologist, Mm -hmm. um, for example, that you thought was a really, you had a really good collaborative relationship with that person and, and why you think that was, or whether, you know, there's been parts of your own skill set or identity that have evolved um, mm-hmm. through these collaborative experiences, and what, yeah. how have you needed to adapt yourself to do that well?
1: Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I've so the, there's one particular orangutan conservation scientist and strategist um, whom I've been collaborating quite a lot with. Um, I'm not going to name this person, but uh, he he was basically uh, quite an important sort of entry point into the field of orangutan conservation. Um, And he's actually quite a controversial figure within orangutan conservation uh, because he was one of the earliest people to push back against the idea or against the sort of principle of of, um, fortress conservation. I mean, basically this idea of protecting large tracts of land and and fencing out people, um, which was and still is in many ways the kind of... uh, the baseline approach to orangutan conservation um, since the 1980s um, and what he was essentially doing was saying okay we need to he and his collaborators were saying well we need to think out of the box we need to try and think of different ways of approaching the orangutan conservation situation because clearly things haven't worked all that well over the last um, few decades their numbers are plummeting they're still critically endangered um, you know we need to start looking first of all at other threats that we haven't really been thinking about and also start looking at uh, unusual or potentially controversial ways of alleviating these threats. And so one of the big threats that he kind of identified um, was um, the fact that there is actually quite a lot of uh, killing of orangutans on the ground in parts of rural Borneo. Um, now, the, the methods through which he at this information were quite, I mean, they they were unusual in the sense that they consisted of very large scale questionnaires and and interviews that took place um, across the island. Uh, And then there was a lot of number crunching that sort of went on a lot of extrapolation. And at the end of it, he and his team kind of produced, uh, you know, an estimate of how many orangutans were being killed on the ground uh, per year, Um, you know, how this would then uh, contribute to the overall rate of orangutan population decline and and so on, right. So it it was a very kind of it made a splash, that survey, and it was very unusual because it was one of the first um, <clears throat> few uh, examples of a more kind of socially informed approach being applied in orangutan conservation. So this study, as well as his recommendations, have um, have been quite hotly debated. A lot of conservationists don't agree with him. Um, and the other thing that he's also sort of slightly controversial about, um, for is his collaboration with uh, oil palm corporations um this actually does happen more than you'd expect uh in various sectors of orangutan conservation even though you don't hear about it very much because you know oil palm and palm oil are such emotive topics in the west um but there's a lot of this stuff going on on the ground and and you know various organizations and conservationists do get their funding um from uh these big corporations um so he's an interesting figure, and and what i what I like about collaborating with him um is precisely the fact that he's he's kind of willing to to kind of break out of the mold. You know he as you know to use his words, he he, he is willing to think out of the box and to actually um be brave enough to stick his neck out and think through unusual uh, ways of addressing uh, particular problems. Um And this, I think, has made him much more amenable in many ways to genuine cross-disciplinary exchange than maybe some other uh, conservationists would be, because, you know, essentially what he's always trying to do is say, OK, how can your input, right? How can your findings on the ground, how can your perspective as an anthropologist of Borneo, how can that help me to rethink my baseline assumptions and my baseline models of conservation? Right. How can I actually put these to use? In trying to come up with different ways of approaching um, the orangutan conservation problem, um, and so I think you know, sort of drawing from that, I think a good collaborator um, is very often somebody who has a, a very strong reflexive awareness of their of where they're coming from, of, of their particular baselines, the models that you're using, that, that they're using, the the assumptions that they're bringing to the table. Um, and who's also willing to kind of be be informed, you know, in conversation by the other collaborators um, and, and from those conversations uh, to rethink and and reimagine what exactly their entire project could look like. Um, and I think that's the thing that I've probably valued most about uh, my collaboration with this person.
2: Mm, great, thank you.
0: I had a, perhaps a similar question which is related to that, which is, you mentioned in the article which we've been talking about this idea of, of bridging devices and perhaps mm-hmm. some may call those boundary objects. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you would also see it that way. And you mentioned earlier that some of those are discursive. And you also mentioned that yeah, publishing formats could be, for example, maybe not the right ones, um, for all disciplines. I would be interested to hear that. I think, you know, we're all more or less kind of coerced or being guided into developing PDFs, which are in a very structured format mm, for most mm. journals, um, despite the quite large differences we'd have methodologically yeah. um, in sharing our work, mm-hmm. and also in the types of data we we have to share at work, mm-hmm. particularly qualitative and quantitative.
1: Mm-hmm. Asking about what what alternatives there could be, or
0: yeah, I was thinking mm-hmm. if you this idea of bridging devices and boundary objects, mm. you know those. Are there other things, as you were telling the story of your colleague, mm. um, there is these discursive and reflexive uh, aspects of finding shared space or finding a way to exist in a kind of a plural understanding. I wonder if you just had, an, if there was any others which you reflected on.
2: Yeah,
1: um, I mean, certainly the the workshop between conservationists and social scientists that I mentioned was very important in that respect because, um, you know, as I said, one of the participants described it as a, as a safe space. Um, and I think one of the points that came up was that you know very often it's it's difficult to get funding for that sort of workshop where you're actually forced to just slow down a bit rather than kind of hurtling towards your your standard conservation or or academic goals, and to actually take a whole day out to talk and think with other individuals across divides. And I think actually, those sorts of safe spaces are absolutely crucial. Um, you know, whether we're talking about interdisciplinarity or we're talking about conservationists trying to engage local communities, um, it's, it's, I think it's really important to be able to kind of hold open those spaces and, and to be, you know, rather than to have a kind of preset agenda or a list of things that you need to tick off, um, to be open to what might actually emerge out of those discussions. Um, I think time is, is something that everyone you know in academia and in conservation lacks and and actually in a, in a curious way you know this this paper this workshop that we did was a sort of invitation to just slow down and, and think and go back to basics so I think finding different safe spaces whether they're taking the form of workshops or kind of zoom conversations um could be extremely important um <clears throat> the other thing that I've been thinking about um is actually the use of various sort of virtual technologies, which I've been finding really, really interesting. Um, in, in, in our paper, we sort of mentioned one particular example, which is this orangutan count project where um, the scientists, uh, the scientist Sol Milne at the University of Aberdeen, uh, took loads and loads of drone footage of uh, canopies of um, various parts of the forest in Sabah and basically set up this this page where um, on Zooniverse, where participants, members of the public, were invited to basically play this game. You know, where you try to spot orangutan nests in the canopies and kind of log these results, and then through that to try and contribute to a better understanding of um, you know orangutan population density and um, what was happening in in these areas that were not quite primary forest, not quite degraded forest, somewhere in between, um, but could still be viable habitats for orangutans. And I think that's another really interesting example of how, you know, engagement can take place in uh, sort of through various virtual devices that invite you to just think about um, think about things like conservation in a slightly different way. Um, so one of the, I think, interesting outcomes of that particular project, um, Saul was saying, was that. Uh, it actually started to make people more aware that, you know, the stereotype of the this, this very romantic image of the orangutan as only a- being able to live in primary rainforest was actually not entirely accurate. That it was possible for for them to carry on surviving in slightly degraded or, you know, not quite pristine habitat, um, which, of course, in turn kind of changes the public's understanding of, of you know, how exactly we can save orangutans. Right. Um, so I guess. Yeah, there are various ways of thinking about it. Definitely, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely up for interacting with individuals as a key um, bridging device. Uh, but also, you know, I guess, especially in the current era, um, <laughs> given that nobody can, nobody can travel anywhere, um, <clears throat> I think experimenting with virtual games, often in a slightly playful manner, um, could actually be another useful bridging device.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had one last note. And that was something that you said earlier, which stuck with me. I've been thinking about it is this idea of the risk of dis- interdisciplinarity. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a phrase which I've come across a lot. It, it's definitely come up in some conversations that I've had with colleagues. Mm. Yeah, I would just be interested in your, your thoughts on that. And what's the risk there? I think you mentioned earlier that it was about perhaps the misuse of methodologies or a lack mm-hmm. of understanding of theoretical aspects of particular types of work. Yeah, I would be be happy to hear any any final thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I think think risk is something that we haven't really paid enough attention to. Um, And I think it'd be very interesting as well to see if, you know, in the future, um, interdisciplinary grant applications actually... Um require applicants to sort of provide a, a sort of risk mitigation statement or something, you know, like what happens if this whole thing falls apart or what happens if it doesn't really achieve the goals that it is meant to achieve? Because we don't really talk about that. But there isn't really a sort of strong mechanism for retrospectively analyzing, um, you know, the the success or the efficacy or whatever, um, the outcomes of um, interdisciplinary projects. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the biggest risk is probably, you know, the inadvertent or maybe deliberate, deliberate, but very often inadvertent, but kind of, um, um, you know, well-meaning misuse of particular methods of particular um, perspectives that that are very easily detached from their disciplinary context and their disciplinary practitioners. Um, You know, I think the sort of classic example in orangutan conservation or in conservation more generally is, is what people sometimes call social research, which is, um, you know, basically it's, it's the deployment of, um, a set of interview techniques. Uh, it's, it's basically using one-off interviews of maybe an hour long where, uh, carried out in various villages, uh, as a means of gathering very, very sort of quick and very, um, basic information about the, the, the inverted commas, um, social situation of, of the places where you might be thinking of establishing a conservation scheme. Um, and I think there's a sort of general feeling that once you've done that, you've kind of ticked the social box and you're okay to go ahead. Um, but of course, one of the problems with interviews, and I've seen this many times, you know, sitting with friends in, 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 in the village in Borneo where these people from NGOs or the government turn up and they're just like, oh, I don't, I don't understand what this question is asking. Um, let's just make up some answers. What do you think? You think they're going to give us money? Right. Let's tell them what they want to hear so they'll give us lots of money. You know, I think there's a real kind of risk that, um, the sort of hasty deployment of just, standard interview techniques without really thinking very hard about the premise, the premises and the models um, underlying these techniques can lead to a very sort of superficial and very circumscribed understanding of a place that you absolutely need to understand. Um, So, you know, the sort of standard risk for interviews as used by conservation, for example, is that you just get the answers that people think conservationists want to hear, or you don't get very candid or very Mm in-depth answers, you know, because conservation is such a kind of Um, sensitive topic and they're fully aware that orangutans, for example, are endangered species that are protected by the law. So you kind of get very, very sort of superficial answers um, that are somehow then translated into policy. Um, So I think there is a real risk that, you know, without the proper training, without the proper kind of um, reflexive um, awareness of what they're actually doing, um, these practitioners can actually end up Causing some real damage um, by 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 using this, these these um, techniques and these methods um, in a slightly careless way. Um, I think the other sort of the other big risk um, is probably um, the possibility that disciplinary practitioners end up becoming even more territorial and protective than they used to be. And I've sort of seen this happen a little bit with some um, anthropologists who've dabbled a bit in interdisciplinary conversations. And who basically kind of stomped back, you know, to the to to anthropology conferences or to the office and just said, oh, my God, that was a disaster. I don't ever want to do that again. You know, oh, these scientists are so positivists," or, you know, these, these people just have no idea what social research actually involves. I, I, never, I never want to do this again. Um, and, you know, I, and again, this goes back to our earlier conversation about how you have to try and find ways to make yourself legible to each other. I think there's a real risk that. If it's forced, um, interdisciplinary collaboration can actually end up um, increasing people's defensiveness about the distinctiveness um, of their particular discipline and its methods and its insights um, such that, you know, you get a very brief moment of collaboration and then everyone else goes off their separate ways again uh, because um, they've actually decided that it's much nicer to, to just kind of stay in their own comfortable fields Um, I mean, this is a very sort of cynical take on it, but, you know, I think, I think this can happen and I've certainly seen it happen. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's, um, those are the sort of two big risks that I, that I think about when it comes to interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary collaboration. Mm -hmm. Um, the final risk, um, maybe, I mean, maybe this is less of a sort of broad issue, but I think there is at the moment, I think there still is a bit of a risk for individual researchers especially early career scholars um, who are genuinely keen on pursuing interdisciplinary options um, it depends on what particular field they're in what particular disciplines they're in and, and what these disciplines view of cross-disciplinary collaboration is um, but at this point in time i'd be very very wary of advising uh a PhD anthropologist, for example, to wholeheartedly go into interdisciplinary collaborations and grants if they want to get a permanent academic job. And and again, that is because, you know, in terms of the structures of conventional academia and the the sort of political economy of of contemporary academia, it's actually not that easy um, to make uh, a career out of genuinely interdisciplinary work. And I know in, in some other fields, it is a lot easier to do that. But I mean, certainly in a lot of the social sciences and humanities, you know, there's still a big question mark um, over genuine interdisciplinarity. There's, there's still a lot of disciplinary territorialism. And so, you know, when we talk about risks, I think we also need to think about how those risks are unevenly distributed across different groups of people and different structures. Um, you know, for some people, some collaborations are just more risky, period.
0: Mm. Yeah, before we close out here, it would be great to hear a little bit about what you're engaging in in the future or perhaps what you would like to do uh, Mm -hmm. in the coming years in your own research.
1: Uh, Yes, so um, I'm currently in the middle of uh, these two orangutan conservation-related grants. So we're we're just emerging from the main fieldwork stage, although things have been slightly held up by the uh, the COVID situation. Um, And so in the next couple of years, we're going to be trying to... Do more collective analysis um, and and write up uh, various papers about our findings. Um, at some point, uh, I'd really like to go back to my earlier research uh, with with Bidayus in in Borneo. Um, this dam construction and resettlement scheme that I've been following for for a while now, um, you know, has has it's. I've been I've been trying to follow that scheme and its and its um, aftermath for for quite a long time, and I'm still doing so. And I really like to just start writing uh, my next book, which is going to be based on over a decade's worth of um, field work with this with these communities. Um, and then looking even further ahead, um, I'm kind of toying with different ideas um, for. Uh, for new research projects. But I think one of the things I'm I'm really interested in is is looking at um, the experiences of groups um, or individuals who are doing things that are increasingly being uh, criticized or challenged or undermined um, as a result of the increasing growth of um, sustainability movements. Um, I'm particularly interested at this point, although it might change uh, in the experiences of butchers um, in the United Kingdom, um, you know, particularly as people move towards more sort of vegetarian or vegan lifestyles, and um, people have become sort of increasingly concerned about the carbon footprint of of farming, of meat eating in general. Um, the question that I'm becoming increasingly interested in is: What do people who are kind of possibly going out of fashion? Um, how are they responding to the current moment? Um, and I guess that's a little bit an extension of my my current work on orangutan conservation in the sense that we're, we're looking at you know very very sort of powerful discourses and and ideas that are sweeping um, certain societies and how uh, different groups and individuals within those societies are responding to it, even if uh, what they're doing isn't um, quite in line with with what's popular. So yeah, uh, th- those are just kind of really really rough thoughts and ideas but they might
2: change
0: that's great well you mentioned quite a few things in the last minutes we, we might have to have you back on to discuss <laughs> them if you're willing absolutely thanks so much for for coming on this has been great thank
2: yes. you very so much thank you for your time and insights i just i couldn't agree more with what you were saying about a lot of things so it'll just be yeah If we don't meet again it'll be it'll be at least fun to think about all the questions that we didn't get to today
1: oh absolutely and yes well thank you very much i've I've not been grilled so much on interdisciplinarity in the past so (laughs) this is this has been an interesting reflexive experience for me as well
2: yeah there we go cool
0: thanks again to all of you for listening and supporting this podcast The show notes, which include more information about our guests and links to the material mentioned in the episodes can be found on most podcast players or on our website. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or Google Play, and it can also be streamed from our website. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, where we would be happy to connect and continue these discussions. Thanks again.